4: To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.
5: I thought it might be useful for those of you who haven't yet read the book, if I just read you a couple of very short extracts from the final few pages. Um, The first is actually Roger quoting a historian called Karl Brown, who says the following. For roughly the last two centuries, the Middle East has been more consistently and more thoroughly ensnarled in great power politics than any other part of the non-Western world. Other parts of the world have been at one time or another more severely buffeted by an imperial power, but no area has remained so unremittingly caught up in multilateral great power politics. And I think one of the things we may very well discuss is why that should be the case. And finally, Roger's very final paragraph of the book. It requires willful blindness to deny that the West is deeply implicated in the region's failures. With its reckless and ill-planned interventions, its indulgence of autocratic rulers, its double talk about democracy and human rights, it has contributed in no small measure to the instability of the region and to the poisoning of relations between the Middle East and the West. Western policies and objectives may have evolved in complexity since colonial times. No one in the 1950s could have foreseen the Internet or Al-Qaeda, but their effect on the region has been essentially the same, to lock it into a web of interests which the West feels a constant need to protect, either through proxies or through direct intervention. In Iraq in 2003, as in Egypt in 1882, the itch to intervene has persisted which gives us a great jumping-off point to ask Roger what he meant.
4: (laughs) Thank you, Robin, and thanks to all of you. Um, Well, nothing more needs to be said, really. Um, I'll just just add a few details, maybe tell you a couple of stories. I mean, that's it, if you want the essence of the book. But why did I write the book? Because I think people have great difficulty, for perfectly understandable reasons, understanding what's going on in the Middle East, especially now. Think of Syria, think of Iraq, think of Libya, and although nobody does think about it very much, think about Yemen. And through all my time as a journalist, going back to the 1970s, I hesitate to admit to that, um, it seemed to me that journalists are so busy looking at the crowded foreground That there's no time or space to look at the important background and in the Middle East and if you do try and do that your your editors and your bosses will tell you get on with it you know we're we're in the news business we're not in the PhD business Uh, a colleague once said to me in exasperation in my early days in Bush House Roger you're a hackademic and I wear, the ba- I wear it as a badge of pride. That's fine with me. But what he meant was stop faffing around, get on with it. Where's the story and why are we doing this story now? Because that's what news is supposed to be. So I wanted to tell the story of how the modern Middle East emerged from the shadow of colonial rule and it is not fully emerged from the shadow of colonial rule in a way that's the point but it emerged in the sense that the colonial powers principally britain and france left and independent states emerged in one form or another but i'm so i chose 10 countries ambitious stretching from Algeria. My definition of the Middle East is very broad, and I hope nobody will want to spend 20 minutes debating that. Uh, Algeria is an Arab country, and it's part of the story as far as I'm concerned, and part of the imperial story too, a very important part. But stretching from Algeria in North Africa to southern Arabia, to the British withdrawal from Aden with their tail between their legs in 1967. But the ten stories told chronologically are designed to tell one single story the story the story of how the Middle East emerged um, from the colonial era historians tell us what happened and even an amateur historian like me knows you've got to tell the folks what happened but I want to tell them tell you what it felt like to be there which is very difficult different and sometimes difficult to do how do you do this you all know the answer to this now you all read history books through oral history through the letters, memoirs, diaries biographies, autobiographies or, and I'm a journalist I like to talk to real people in this case in their 80s and 90s some of them uh, and they tell me their oral history story, what they were doing in Baghdad uh, in the 50s, what they were doing in, in, in Palestine as it then was during the Second World War. Great. Much as I'm used to sitting in libraries, sitting with a real-life human being, telling me their story and allowing me to pump them, to draw them, to question them, uh, that's better still. So I wanted to tell the story. I wanted to give some sense of what it was like to be there. Uh, I'll give you two quick examples. When I think of the Iraqi revolution, when the British-backed monarchy in Baghdad was overthrown in 1958, I don't think of the big figures. I think of Lamia Gelani, still alive, one of the most distinguished Iraqi archaeologists. She was a young teenager back for the summer vacation from Cambridge. And she's in the burning heat of, of Iraq in the summer, you sleep on the roof of your house. And she's there, and her brother's over there on the roof. And suddenly, shots ring out. And Lamia is sleepy, but she gradually stirs herself and says, "What's going on? Oh, some shots being fired." And so Lamia says. It must be some tribes fighting in Baghdad. And her brother says, oh, typical Cambridge education. You think there are tribes shooting off guns on the streets of Baghdad? And within moments they realize, or they somehow intuitively they realize, that these are the first shots fired in the revolution which overthrew the monarchy which the British had established in Iraq uh, towards the end of the First World War. For, for the British... It's a story of disaster. British accounts will tell you how the members of the royal family, the Iraqi royal family, the the Prime Minister Nouri al said who was one of the most reliable people from the British point of view, uh, were killed. Nouri was dismembered by an angry crowd. That's the British side of the story. Bloodshed, tragedy, violence, end of an era for the British Empire. For Iraqis... Lamia told me with her eyes shining more than 50 years on, I rushed down to the street in my nightdress, she said, for the British an end of an era, for the Iraqis a moment of liberation, a coming of age. I'll leave it at the one example. Well, I'll mention the, the other totally contrasting example which, which fascinated me. A British soldier, a young left wing soldier called Dave Wallace, who was sent to Egypt during the Second World War. Now, my father and my grandfather were in Egypt, and they hated it, and they were convinced that the Egyptians hated them too. A not uncommon response. Dave Wallace loved it, and it was the formative moment in his life. And it was the formative moment in his political evolution. And he wrote about it, uh, first of all, in a, in a novel, very hard, not easy to get hold of now, Tram Stopped by the Nile. Uh, and, and, and in several long interviews uh, he gave. I won't tell you the whole story, but these are the people. This is, as it were, history from below rather than history from above. Uh, Robin, finally, Robin has stolen my thunder, in a very convenient way by quoting from the end of the book. Why is the book called The Poisoned Well? I'll, there are many reasons, but I'll give as quickly as I can two. The In the colonial era, the seeds were sown of the conflicts that still plague the Middle East now. The most obvious one for which Britain is absolutely directly responsible, and no question about it, is Palestine. Britain created the Palestine problem, and that is not a controversial statement, it's a statement of historical fact. The controversy comes later, relation of Israelis and Palestinians and all that. In a broadly similar way, not quite the same, the French created the Lebanon and Syria problem. The French created the Algeria problem in the sense that they were there for 132 years. And if 132 years uh, and the relations, there's no way the relations between France and Algeria since that time uh, could not be deeply, profoundly, traumatically affected by all of but beyond that, and that's, this was the quote from Carl Brown, still alive, by the way. He's apparently reading the book in his home near Washington, which delights me. What Tony Blair and George Bush got wrong was, in 2003, was that they, they appeared to be totally ignorant of this history, this history of Western intervention in the Middle East over, as Carl Brown says, over two centuries goes back to the decay of the Ottoman Empire, then the colonial period, then the post-colonial period. And in this sense, the imperialists poisoned the well. And I'm sorry to say, Bush and Blair did their bit to poison the well too. That's it from me. Thank you, Roger.
5: Um, I've got one question for you before I move on to our next panelist. it could be said that there are very few places in the world which have not been poised by the legacy of one empire or another. Uh, pretty much wherever you stick a pin on the globe, you will find there was at one time an empire or empires,
4: and their legacy persists. What makes the Middle East different? It's a good question. Carl Brown's suggestion is that it's more intense and it's gone on for a long time. But I think there are other things too. Where else in the world after a huge war, first in this case the First World War, did two European powers carve up a region, not simply colonize a state or take over a particular state? It was this, it was this pattern um, that set up states, Palestine, what was then Transjordan, Iraq, or what was initially Mesopotamia. Uh, Syria, Lebanon, and the, Le- the, the French engineered that Lebanon would be a Christian majority state. An absolutely fateful decision. Um, and so the, some of the problems of the Middle East were woven into the peace settlement, the long peace settlement of between 1918 and 1920. And I quote in the book, Uh, the great historian Albert Irani, who was a very strong influence on me. (coughs) The ghost of the peace settlement, he wrote, has haunted Arab politics ever since.
5: Okay. Uh, On my right, Hazem Kandil from uh, Cambridge, um, known to many of you, I'm sure. Um, Hazem, do you buy all this? I mean, do
6: you accept the Hardy thesis? (laughs) Well, I need to question the Hardy thesis a bit. So um, I... um, I think this book comes out at a very critical time um, because the Middle East is obviously unraveling in front of our eyes and people justifiably question the arrangements that that put it together. Um, And I think what Roger does in this, I think, very important book is he tries to take us back to this period, this this foundational period, um, and try to tell us a story about what happened then and leaves us to figure out how we reach where we are um, right now. Uh, I think you make a lot of very important points, um, and I would just want to highlight um, three or four of them um, that I would wish you to clarify, elaborate on uh, a bit more. Um, I think one of the main points uh, is that this book, in a very good way, lays to rest um, the very widely held uh, notion that imperialism advanced in a, in a systematic way, um, applying a single, unifying, coherent logic. What we find in the book is a lot of confusion, um, hesitancy, uh, not just squabbles, but very serious disagreements between colonial administrators, military civilian officials, um, governments and their, and their lobbies. Um, and you find that... Spirit of improvisation uh, captured in, in you know some of these quotes. When you talk about the occupation of Egypt, you talk about well, it happened without plan or intent. Um, that you know in Iraq, classic example of mission creep. It's a territory acquired almost by by accident. Um, towards the end, you talked about colonialism, imperialism, colonialism as improvised rather than uh, rather than planned, and so. My question here, in, in that point, uh, is, is: so, do you endorse then the notion of, of an empire um, acquired in a fit of absence of mind, um, or are you suggesting that there was some kind of of underlying logic uh, that you know sweeping all these historical actors forward, even though they were unconscious of it? So, is the haphazardness only apparent to us as readers? You know, the, the real story you know, from below but do you believe in some kind of historical force that was sweeping forward? Um, the other point I thought is quite interesting and, and quite unexpected for me. I thought there was going to be a lot of, you know, just blaming the colonial rulers, but I thought that you did very well in also talking about the regional uh, rulers and what they did. And, and this, again, brings me to the question of agency. And towards the end, you rightly criticize a lot of the local players. And they say, well, you know, it's complacency to think that they were the unwitting victims of all this. And then you come again and saying, but we cannot also deny the responsibility of, of the imperial forces. And I'm going to ask you to do the hard thing, uh, being a academic myself, in, in a way, uh, is if, if you have to allocate the, the main cause for what you call the ongoing state crisis, and distinguish that from a supplementary cause, um, you know where, where would the axe uh, fall? Uh, in your in your chapter on uh, Iran, for example, uh, you talk about Musaddak. It's about you know we, the story we all know about the coup that overthrew Musaddak and the bitterness that this left, and so on. But you say quite rightly, um, and I'm quoting here, that Musaddaq, on the eve of his overthrow was acting in a thoroughly unconstitutional manner. Uh, you say that he alienated all of his key supporters by his high-handed and undemocratic behavior so in a sense thinking about this if there hadn't been a coup um, would mussadddeq you know have continued in his project or the coup kind of gave a nudge to to a process that was already happening that had to do a lot a lot with him and then another thing here again the question of agency um, I just want to read a very short excerpt um, a British um, diplomat describing a city I will name momentarily. He says, well, the whole city groans under the tyranny of the minister of police. The highest functionaries might be summoned in the middle of the night and interrogated by persons much their inferior in rank and utterly frivolous charges. A man is spied on by his colleagues, his subordinates, his servants, who all write reports of his daily doings. And reading this, you think, this is one of these dictators propped up by Western powers in the 50s and 60s. We, we know that from Egypt, from Syria, from Iraq. This is actually a description of Istanbul under the rule of the Sultan Abdul Hamid, who was one of the most staunchly anti-Western you know, figures in the late Ottoman period. And so this is exactly the kind of police state. So I was wondering, is is how responsible are Middle East players with that? Now, finally. <laughs> And I can I guess this this brings us to the bigger question. The second question was 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 getting there. Is this notion of counterfactual, you know, and what would have happened if if that hadn't happened? And looking at this, looking at the the, you know the history of the region, for more than a millennium, you had a history of um, ethnic sectarian tensions that in many cases led to civil wars, contested borders. Um, you know, creeds fighting each other. You had um, dynasties rising and falling, uh, Mamluks, the umayyads the cascade of, uh, of dynasties in Andalusia, which is predecessor to the state crisis that, that you're describing. And interestingly enough, you always had what you describe as the holier-than-thou creeds that we, you know, see today in Qada and Dash and, and so on. These were the Kharijits, you know, from, from in a, a 1,200 years before, and you write a bit about um, the Wahhabis. And, of course, there's the you know the 18th century Wahhabis, and they have to be put down because they were you know, uh, going against the Ottoman ruler. And the modern-day kind of creed, the, the Ikhwan of the uh, in 1927 revolting against Ibn Saud. So, you know, saying that Ibn Saud is not religiously proper enough for them, and he having to put them down. So, in a way, you can see that all these things have been there for hundreds of years. So the question is... What did imperialism introduce into the region uh, that was not really there before, for hundreds and you know, arguably more than a, a thousand a year before? I have one little thing, but I'm say I'm, uh,
5: I, I'm glad that you highlighted the uh, what you call the spirit of improvisation, which sort of is a, a thread that runs through nearly all of the chapters, because it it set me thinking, and I wondered whether you were left with the impression that Roger saw the, the, this history that he's looking at as almost a chapter of accidents mm-hmm. with the imperial powers perennially taken by surprise, by A, what
6: was happening, and then B, the effects that their actions had. I mean, is, is that something which surprised? I think one of one of the quotes about how history is made that really stayed with me is Joseph Ellis, is the historian of the American Revolution, and he says, men make history but they don't know which history they're making. Um, and I think this is very true. And this is, I think, what I came out of the book. I mean, all these people were just scrambling, struggling around, uh, dealing with wartime imperatives and contingencies. Um, like you mentioned, the, the contradictory and possibly irreconcilable pledges the British made to the Arabs and the Jews and the French. And then Churchill was left you know, 1921 trying to square the circle. Um, It's it's just a series of improvisations, I mean, not necessarily accidents, um, and there might be forces uh, playing, and this is what I was asking Roger about, there might be some forces, but it certainly are not as coherent and systematic um, as some of the other, you know, books that are written about the subject might might suggest.
5: Uh, Roger, you will get a
6: chance to answer all of Hazard's questions, (laughs) but
5: let, 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 let me bring in Jonathan first. Jonathan Steele, I'm sure you are all very well acquainted with, formerly of The Guardian, uh, now chief reporter at Middle East, I, uh, just back from Iran, he was telling me. Um, Jonathan, your thoughts on uh, Roger's book?
7: Well, I think this is an absolutely wonderful book because it's full of these kind of anecdotes that Roger's already been telling us about. It's full of quotations from diaries of people at the time, either, either people who were the victims of this empire, uh, Iraqis, Egyptians, or whatever, or more likely the quotes come from people who were serving the British Empire. And I think it's really, really important that there is a book of this kind because those of us who were brought up in England and educated in English schools are given this impression that the empire was something very benign, modernized and helped these countries get on their feet and so on. We're never told about the atrocities, the brutality, the massacres, the racism of imperialism. I mean, empire is in the title of this book because... Book covers are supposed to have short words, but as Roger's been saying, imperialism is what it's about. And it's not the cock-up theory of history. It's not a conspiracy. It's a system. This was a system that lasted much longer than the other isms of the 20th century, Nazism and communism. This lasted for 200 years, and it was a system like those other isms, which brought misery to millions and millions of people. And what is fantastic about this book is that it, it... brings a lot of that to, to life. I mean, Roger just mentioned the, uh, the um, Dave Wallace, the young British soldier who went out to Egypt to, to serve in the British Army. And you didn't say, and I thought you were going to steal my thunder. I mean, it's your thunder, but I'm reintroducing it for you. This, what he was told by a fatherly old sergeant major when he arrived, now then, especially you drivers, just a word of advice... Traffic's very chaotic in Cairo, so if you happen to knock down a wog, stop and back over him and finish him off. It's much the best thing to do. The British will pay compensation to his widow more than she would ever earn in a 100 years. It saves a lot of form filling. If you injure a fellow, you wouldn't believe the paperwork you've got to go through, and you might end up on a charge anyway. So my advice is, knock a wog down, stop, back over him, and finish him off. I mean, this kind of racism is just incredible. The apartheid, the oil fields in Abadan in Iran, when they, were, were like South Africa under the, the Boers. I mean, there were separate buses for Iranians and for the British. There were obviously people were just treated as servants and, uh, and, and, and slaves almost. Um, and then you got the bombing. The bombing that we hear of nowadays that we had in Iraq, we had in Libya. It was going on under the British Empire and the French as well. Um, there's nothing new in what's going on now. L- listen to this. This is a description of Syria. Every and I'm not going to tell you who's uh, the full story until I finish the quote. Every part of Syria is being destroyed. Bombs pitilessly pour onto peaceful, defenseless towns, Homs, Hammer, and Aleppo are subjected to unprecedented bombardment. For three days, Damascus has undergone savage bombardment by aircraft, artillery, and tanks. Fires resulting from the bombardments are breaking out everywhere. Whole streets and districts have been ravaged by firebombs and destruction. Who was doing the bombing? The French. When? 1945, just after the liberation of Europe, the French were trying to hold on to Syria, even though the Syrians were... Wanting independence, which had been promised to them many times, and particularly before the war, so this is nothing new. I'm afraid this what is going on at the moment. We started this, the French and the British. I mean, this is a book by a British person, so the French actually come out even worse than the British do in this book. (laughs) I mean, the atrocities in Algeria were quite fantastic. Two million Algerians were displaced and forced into camps, concentration camps, to try and get them away from the so-called militants who were poisoning their minds with the idea of independence. So this is, I I think it's really fantastic. And as you said in the closing points you made, Roger, in your thing about history, I mean, it's not just that, Schoolboys who've grown up like me don't know anything about history. I, I'm not a decision maker. Our politicians don't know anything about the history. I remember a colleague of mine who was talking to Tony Blair at one point about Iran and said, Well, what about the memory of the coup? And Blair said, Coup? What coup? <laughs> I didn't know that in 1953, mm-hmm. Mohammed Mossadegh had been overthrown by the British and the CIA as well. I mean, and then we had the extraordinary thing of Gordon Brown in 2005. In on a visit to Tanzania, saying it's about time we British had to uh, stop apologising for the British Empire. Did we ever start apologising for it? Uh,
5: Jonathan uh, has him raised the uh, what he called the issue of agency, and says quite rightly that Roger does not absolve local leaders of blame where to them, it, It's a very tricky balance to strike, isn't it? Where responsibility lies for particular events during the course of this period. Do you think he got the balance right?
7: No, I think he did. I mean, uh, uh, of course, there was, in any system, what people are running it, are different t- people. Some are incompetent, some are brave, some are cowardly, some give up, some cruel and become very pitiless in their way of dealing with things. So all that, of course, all the human emotions of the people in charge, I mean... And the f- human foibles, I mean, it's a wonderful story about Edmund Allenby, the sort of, quote, hero who liberated Jerusalem, when he became high commissioner in Cairo later on, kept a stork in the garden, which would, he would watch it unpick his shoelaces, and then sort of fiddle with the hats of the ladies who were there at tea time. So, you know, these were human people running this great empire. But um, as I say, the basic thing was a system which required oppression and subservience, and it was absolutely manipulated. I mean, two kings were asked to abdicate the Shah of Persia and the King of Egypt were just told by the British ambassador, who just turned up in one case as a civilized hour at six o'clock, but in the case of Egypt at 4 a.m. in the morning, and just said, You have to abdicate. Either you sack the Prime Minister or you abdicate.
4: Now, Roger, um, come back. I think has characteristically posed all sorts of uh, interesting points and challenging points. The big one to my mind is this question of the inside and the outside. I had to write about this when my old friend, Fred Halliday, died. I learned a lot from Fred. I learned quite a lot by disagreeing with Fred. But one important thing on which I agreed with him is he said to me, And he wrote about this continually in his huge output. Why is the Middle East so difficult? Because the inside and the outside interlock. They're locked, and neither side can break the chain. What do I mean? The interaction between the internal forces and the external forces, the internal dynamics and the external dynamics. Now think of Syria. It's part of the explanation why Syria is so damn complicated and why it's so difficult to unlock what has been locked together. Now, in the case of the Middle East, uh, why are they locked? And then Hazim's question, should we and can we, two slightly different questions, attribute blame responsibility as between the internal and the external? And I'm going to resist that question, but in just uh, a moment. This is about huge Western strategic interests, which have varied over time, but go right back to the Ottoman Empire. The strategic question then, and for a long time, was called, rather euphemistically, the Eastern question. What to do about the decay of the Ottoman Empire? And Western powers, which then meant European powers and Russia we may or may not say Russia is a European power, it doesn't matter, were intervening all the time in a competitive way, uh, picking at the corpse, as we might say now, of the decaying Ottoman Empire. My point is that intervention is the norm in the Middle East. That may sound a very radical thing to say. Intervention is not the exception, it is a given. But I do not mean by that The full-on military invasion followed by occupation that we had during the colonial period in Egypt to Algeria and then disastrously we had in Iraq. I mean intervention across a very broad spectrum from, as it were, the softest of soft power to the hardest of hard power. On that spectrum of intervention, intervention is the norm. Why? Because the magnitude of Western interests over the last 200 years has been of, of such uh, size and scope and importance, strategically, economically, diplomatically, that those interests, have, this is the perception of those powers, have had to be defended, at, at a, even at a very high Price. The nature of those interests has changed. We have to add Israel into the mix. Uh, after the creation of Israel, we have to add radical jihadist Islam now as being the big uh, interest. The, the nature of the interests has changed. The pattern of intervention has gone on for a long time, for, for roughly 200 years or so, and I don't expect it to end anytime soon. The question is not whether we, if I may use the we, whether we intervene, but whether we intervene intelligently. I resist the either-or because of, I'm quoting Fred Halliday, the internal and the external are locked together. Uh, It's pointless in a way to say, oh... And of course, it becomes self-serving. It suits um, uh, not only the dictators of the region, but I'm afraid the conspiracy theorists of the region, of whom there are many, to say it's everything is the fault of the wicked imperialists. But it also suits people on question time. You hear them almost every time Iraq and Syria has come up. It'll be George Galloway or somebody who says, well, didn't the West have something to do with this in Iraq and so on? And he will be almost shouted down by others on the panel who say, no, no, stop this. Uh, we are, you know, breastbeating beating that we're to blame for every damn thing. We're not to blame for every damn thing, but we have a historic responsibility for what has happened in the Middle East. And part of the awfulness of Iraq is that when we do something, when we intervene in a massive way, disastrously, we remind the peoples of the region of the humiliations of the past, in particular the colonial past. So these interventions are not only disastrous, not least for the people of Iraq, but they're disastrous for all of us. They keep going. They continue to poison the world.
5: I wonder, um, has it, let me put this to you, I'm not, I'm not a fatalist, I'm not saying everything that happens is bound to happen and there's nothing anybody can do about it, but is it possible to argue that it's the misfortune of the nations of the Middle East, A, to be where they are geographically, in the sense that they lie on what were at one time very important trade routes and therefore it was in the interests of the traditional European colonial powers to safeguard their interests in that region in order to safeguard their economies, and then later added to the misfortune of geography, there was the misfortune of geology, which is that many of those nations found themselves sitting on huge deposits of oil, which of course were of enormous, again, economic interest to the richer powers.
6: Is there a sense of inevitability about some of this? Well, I mean, this, when I was reading what Roger was writing about the the itch to intervene, Mm. Um, I was thinking if there's a possibility to resist that itch, mm. um, because I think Roger is absolutely right in saying that at least in the last 200 years, the geopolitics and geology of it has made it so um, that the West is implicated in the region in a sense. So when I think about the, the Arab revolts and I think about the Americans intervening in Libya, and many of us see this as an intervention that's gone disastrously wrong, and then them not intervening in Syria, and many of us seeing that non-intervention is something that has went disastrously wrong. So the question is, are they damned if they do, damned if they don't? Uh, the same thing with Egypt. I mean, in, in, in a sense, Mubarak was seen as, you know, as sitting on his throne because of um, American support. Um, but then when that support was, was withdrawn, it was seen well, Americans are to blame because they are supporting the Muslim Brotherhood to come to power, have been doing it for a long time. And then when they stop supporting the Muslim Brotherhood, it's seen that the Americans are supporting the evil coup that removed them, uh, and they're, you know, tied hand in glove with the military. So when I'm reading this, I'm trying to think of what could the imperial powers have done wrong? I mean, you're talking about the First World War. Ottoman Empire enters the war against Britain, and Britain is fighting that war. Could it have decided not to intervene in, you know, its kind of rivals' uh, territory? And then once it's there... Uh, Could it just drop it as a wet sock and and leave? I mean, and and what I like about this book is that there are some stories of, you know, disasters and success. So, you know, Iraq, putting it together seems a very bad idea. But you also point out that the seven sheikhdoms of the Gulf being put together turn out to be a very, you know, prosperous country, uh, the Emirates right now. So it's, I think it's, again, it's, it's more, they are implicated in the region. I think Roger is right. And it's just much more complicated than thinking, can they... Withdraw. I think I agree with you in thinking they should intervene in an intelligent way. I think this, this is the point of, of the epilogue. Jo- okay. Let me
5: just ask Jonathan yeah. one thing and then come back to you, Roger. Um, all nations act in what they perceive to be their own interests. That That's what governments do. The richest nations, the most powerful nations, obviously have greater resources with which to impose their interests on other parts of the world. Is it reasonable to have expected or to have asked the imperial powers of the 19th and early 20th centuries to have acted differently, given that they had the power to impose their interests on, other, on other, uh, other peoples?
7: Well, there's always competition. I mean, and I made a sort of facetious remark about the British and the French, the French being worse than the British. I mean, the thing is, once one country, and Britain was really the, the leading country, starts intervening then the other countries yeah. say we need our share the germans wanted it, the french particularly wanted it the russians of course wanted yeah. it because of their geography so there is a sort of intra-imperialistic competition that goes on in addition to the fact that they are all of them trying to take over and exploit foreign I mean, something nations happened
5: in africa,
4: didn't it? same thing in africa can, can i say yeah, something uh, that may startle some of you and I I learned this again from my old friend, Carl Brown, the Princeton historian. I spent a very happy year in Princeton. The BBC let me off. Uh, They didn't pay me anything, but they let me off. (laughs) Um, Carl Brown said in a very thought-provoking way, there's been no hegemon in the Middle East since the Ottoman Empire. Even the British, we talk about the Pax Britannica, The British rule, relatively short in the big span of history, was contested, Uh, the French rule was contested almost from first to last, not everywhere but in the big countries, Algeria, Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, Iraq. Who else has tried to be a regional hegemon? Well, a local leader, Nasser, uh, came closest in the fifties and sixties to be a regional hegemon and he was the hero of the Arab uh, street, but he couldn't do it. The British couldn't do it. The French couldn't do it. The Russians couldn't do it. Putin has some ambition now to come back to the Middle East, but he won't do it. And the great United States, which had its moment of Pax Americana. I remember writing a talk, which we did for, for the, for the world service um, at the time when uh, Clinton brought together Arafat and Rabin, and as it were, coaxed them to shake hands. And I wrote a piece called America's Moment in the Middle East, quoting my old mentor, uh, the late uh, Elizabeth Monroe, who'd written a classic book, still a, a, a classic, called Britain's Moment in the Middle East. And I was asking the question, is this America's moment now? Well, it wasn't. They they can achieve much. They are the world's only hyperpower; Nobody else can match them. But they... they, Now, some people in the Middle East may say, great, nobody can control us. But the fact remains that you have an outside world that feels it has to intervene in all sorts of ways in the Middle East, but can't do so to its own satisfaction, never mind the satisfaction of those in the region. Uh, This is an almost inescapable dilemma, it seems to me.
5: Right, let me uh, broaden this out a little bit. And I apologize to people over here who have uh, had my back to so far. Um, there is a roving microphone available, so if you raise your hand, I will then direct the microphone towards you. And I would ask you to wait until the microphone reaches you so that we can hear you. First over there and then down here. Uh, yes.
2: Hi. Um, should I stand up? Or? As you go. Um, so um, I'm, uh, I'm from Egypt and uh, I was kind of, I was there during Tahrir Square and all the kind of the drama that's been going on over the past couple of years and I also have a uh, I run a small organization for Arab Humanists and one of the things we try to focus on is the role of freedom of thought, freedom of religion, how do you get a discussion started where people are actually trying, where we're trying to uh, kind of Initiate social change from within. And uh, and I think uh, Hazm kind of stole part of my question because, um, yes, the West is definitely implicated and it kind of abused a lot of the sectarian divides which were in the region and so on. But um, it's also, we do see this kind of conspiracy theory mentality where there's a tendency, like in Arabic, we say, everything is uh, to blame on the West. And it can be harmful when we're trying to actually change our education system and tackle the root causes for sectarianism and so on. And you mentioned Albert Hurani, for example, and he talks about someone like Ibn Khaldun, who in his history of the Middle East talks about kind of certain areas where we've been declining since the 13th century, whether it's in science or in philosophy, and kind of we had this peak in Baghdad at a certain time, and it's been downhill ever since then. And even on a human rights stance, you can... the Britain did a lot of terrible things. If we talk about slavery, maybe they helped and slavery in certain parts in the Middle East. And I can go on about this for a while, but um, the question is, um, is there a tendency by Western academics to focus too much on the materialistic and socioeconomic factors um, and dismiss the ideological factors because they're a little bit more difficult to kind of pinpoint and measure? So it's, it's a bit difficult to say, oh, Sectarianism exists because of a belief in an afterlife.
3: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together.
2: is this potentially harmful to reformers and dissenters and people trying to create a change from within? And that's the okay, question. Okay,
5: yeah, good. Thank you. Um, let, let's, take, let's take a couple of questions at a time, and then so we'll take this gentleman here and then we'll get a couple of responses. Thank you. I, I have not read the book yet, but... A treat in store. I, I'm certain. <laughs> uh, but the title made me think... that that it was going to be uh, concentrating a great deal on the iniquitous perversions of oil. Now, obviously, that is an important aspect, but it's obviously very much more than that. But any comment you might have on that, I'd appreciate. Thank you. Okay, let's take those two first of all. Roger, do you want to
4: kick off? We've set off, and it's very interesting, but it's also very tricky it's not an easy debate, the past and the present, the internal and the external, and we're trying to somehow balance out those things, which is not an easy task. has mentioned, and forgive my paraphrase, you may think it's an unjust paraphrase, the indigenous traditions of religious rivalry, including sectarianism and intolerance and so on, not created by uh, the wicked imperialists. Uh, You've mentioned issues of human rights, and you've touched on the ideological issues and uh, sectarianism. It's... I'm very hesitant to use the word blame. I don't think it's helpful, but the word word responsibility, and then I would say historic responsibility and more contemporary responsibility. We can begin to to sift out some of these uh, issues. You see... The classic accusation, one of the classic accusations, is that the colonialists divided and ruled. It wasn't always the case, but the classic case where they did divide and rule, with consequences that are still apparent today, is in Syria and Lebanon. The French divided and ruled. The British did not divide and rule. I mean, this is very, I I might, in Palestine, I might leave that one aside. Some Palestinians would tell me that they did and they favored the Jews and so on. So I don't believe this for one moment. They were stuck. In a tremendous dilemma, they didn't want to divide Palestine. Their failure was to unite the communities. They wanted a binational state, insofar as they had a strategy for the future of Palestine. And they couldn't do it. They couldn't reconcile the irreconcilable. The French, in the most calculated way, from the moment of the peace settlement, want to favor the Christian communities. They see themselves as the protectors of, uh, of the Christians of the East, as they would put it. Now, does that mean that the French are responsible for sectarianism today? No, but they they help to set in process in train processes uh, which have led that way. The disastrous decision in Iran, much more recently uh, by Paul Bremer, that, that first year of occupation, of, of Anglo-American occupation, which was really, and the Chilcot reporters underlined this, was American occupation and American decision-making with the Brits in a, in a very junior, uh, junior partner role, but the disastrous decision to, to divide up the posts on a sectarian basis. We've got to have so many Sunni Arabs and so many uh, Shia Arabs and so many Kurds. or oh, we must have some women and what, some Christians and maybe some other minority and so on. Why? Of all the wrong lessons to learn from history, this was a wrong lesson. Are outside powers responsible when there's terrible violence in your country between cops and Muslims? I don't think so, though uh, sometimes uh, you know people in outside countries are not helpful, but that's not the same as saying that they're responsible for what's uh, for what's going on. I I'm, I'm, I resist easy answers. X is all to blame, and Y are innocent pawns. No, Y is all to blame, and X were benevolent outsiders trying to build schools and hospitals and do good, which was the version of Empire, as Jonathan was saying, not only in our school books, but which I imbibed from my early interviews uh, with a quite marvellous man, I quote him only once in the book, well, a remarkable man, and a very much a man of his time, uh, Sir Gawain Bell. They don't make names like that anymore, and they don't really make people like uh, Sir Gawain. And he would sit in his country pub in, I think, Buckinghamshire. And my producer and I sat with him one afternoon. And in this grave voice with tones that even the BBC doesn't use anymore, he said, (laughs) people come up to me in the pub and say, you were a wicked imperialist, weren't you? And he said, I set them straight. He worked in Sudan. And they believed that they transformed Sudan from a a, a huge wilderness into something uh, else. I'm not endorsing the view, I'm saying they believed this. They believed that service was the basis of empire. Now, we reject that almost totally. Uh, Jonathan has said this was a a system, and if I paraphrase you correctly, it was an inherently oppressive system. And it seems to me, somebody I was interviewing said, well, the British got rid of malaria in Palestine, they did, and this could be presented as, as, as altruistic. I mean, we, we, we didn't want British troops or civilians to suffer from malaria, but we went out, in, in, in locust prevention, all sorts of things um, went on. It doesn't, the great mistake is to say, if you improve the lives of people, they will accept the denial of freedom. And the Zionist movement tried this. I quote in the book, the marvelous exchange between Ben Gurion and Musa Alami, a leading Palestinian nationalist. And Ben Gurion said, we're going to make Palestine better. The Arabs will prosper. And Musa Alami replied, We would rather it lay backward and fallow for a hundred years until we can develop it. Politics trumps economics always. And I'm not sure to this day that there are people who realise it. No, no, we can buy people's hearts and minds. You can't. Uh,
5: Jonathan, just on the subject of ideology and and the role that it it may or may not have played during this period, there are some very interesting references through Roger's book to the the flowering of Pan-Arabism for a period. Um, Is there a risk that one underplays the role of ideology, do you think, in, in this period?
7: Well, it's certainly true that none of these states, and I think you point that out in the closing chapter of your book, have produced a real specific local nationalism. You know, what is specific to Syria that is different from Lebanon? So people feel, I'm Syrian and I'm not Lebanese, or vice versa. Basically, people are saying, I'm Arab, or they nowadays increasingly identify themselves as one sect, because that has been, you know... Highlighted so much and of course the IS phenomenon has deliberately not only highlighted it but turned it into a weapon political weapon so uh, th- 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 Crucially, I think that that's one of the in a way the good things about what's happening in the Middle East that there isn't there aren't all these n- Local nationalism competing against each other. There is still a sense that we are part of a unified whole which we want to cre- recreate an Arab whole
5: um,
6: How did you just want to take on the oil? issue? Well, I actually think the book, although it's not about uh, oil wells, but I think it does a marvelous job in covering that part of the history, Uh, and in particular the chapter on on Saudi Arabia. Of course, the chapter on Iran is there, but the chapter on Saudi Arabia is fascinating because it shows that this complication, there's no easy answers. Roger was talking about um, Ibn Saud, the, the one who established the Saudi kingdom, spent all his money unifying that kingdom, and then was broke. And then there was this Texas gentleman that came to him and says, well, I'll give you 50000 in gold, uh, and, you know, if you allow me to execute it, and if I find one, I'll give you 50000 more. So you think here that, the, you know, these things come together in a different way than, again, some of the accounts of the evil imperialists just going there and kind of using the naivete of, you know, patronizing, condescending, <laughs> The local rulers and so about, on. That was c- commercial the, Yeah, yeah it was very, somebody looking for profit. And and somebody looking for money. This is very important as well. And and you know, someone desperate for money. And if he hadn't had that money, it would have been difficult for him to actually sustain and consolidate his power. So all of that appears. So if you're looking for a lot of things about oil, you won't be disappointed, I guess. <laughs> can, can
4: I add a word about yeah, Roger. oil? Because it's I'm not an economist at all or an oil expert. But what struck me forcibly in the two chapters where oil figures very largely, Saudi Arabia and Iran. Oil becomes the spark. Out, oh, is it?
5: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you mean my own personal
4: batteries? <laughs> 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 it, oil becomes the spark for nationalism. It becomes the stake, uh, as the French uh, love to say. And the mistake made, and uh, you see it played out in almost identical terms, uncanny in those two countries. Let's take the British first, because it's slightly earlier. The British oilmen and some of the British officials back in London thought that the oil was theirs, not Iranian. Why? Because British money and British sweat had found the stuff, exploited the stuff, refined the stuff, and got it out. For their benefit, of course, this was Churchill's doing, because he switched the, the navy of the British Empire from coal to oil. And it was Persian oil. Persia was what we now call Iran. And then you find the Americans acting as if it's not Saudi oil; it's our oil, because our money and our sweat and our effort, over years and years with no return immediately, went into getting the stuff, exploiting the stuff, refining the stuff. You know. Um, now in Saudi Arabia, it's hard to speak of nationalism. There's hardly a nationalist backlash in the same way that there is in countries like Egypt or Iran, uh, which were politically far in advance of of Saudi Arabia at that time. But nevertheless, uh, and I hear this from Saudis I talk to, there is great resentment here. In the end, in the 1970s, early 70s, as I recall, Saudi Arabia nationalized Aramco, the company that a consortium of American oil giants had formed. And this is an act of national pride. The only difference is it happens rather later in Saudi Arabia, and they do it with more or less with agreement with the uh, Americans. But the notion is, hey, this is not only ours. It is our sovereign wealth. It is the key to our existence and our future. Get your hands off it. We will cooperate with you on these issues. Do not tell us it is your oil and not our oil. This was a big mistake. So, in a sense, oil is not just a commodity, it is the focus of nationalist uh, sentiment.
7: But there's one wonderful irony in your book when you point out that when in 1951 the Iranians nationalized the the oil and the British government said, You know, this is our blood and our sweat and our tears. How dare you take over this oil? This was at the same time the same British government was nationalizing a lot of things in this country in Britain. <laughs> so it was legitimate in Britain, but it was theft when the foreigners do it in Iran.
5: Um, right, a couple more. Uh, yes, gentlemen down here. Just wait for the mic coming to you, and then the lady over here. Thank
0: you.
4: Uh, the idea you mentioned a few times of
0: intelligent intervention. It's a nice slogan, but I, I worry it might be meaningless. What, what would an intelligent intervention have looked like, say, in Syria? If you look at the original actors whom the West may have helped, whom Britain and the U.S. may have helped, it, it wouldn't work. The FSA was a joke. The, other, other, the only groups that were really fighting hard were jihadists. We're not going to support them. Or what would an intelligent intervention have looked like in Libya?
5: Thank you. Uh, and there was a lady over here. That's all those
1: back. Thank you. Sh- should we look forward to better things uh, with the, the younger generation and with women playing a greater part?
5: Okay. Um, Roger, what would an intelligent
4: intervention look like? You're assuming, and I'm not assuming, that intervention means full military intervention. No, and I tried to qualify... No, no, I'm not
0: assuming that. Well... Even providing arms
4: economic help. Okay. Um, if you accept my premise, and you don't, maybe you don't, that intervention is a norm, there's no way... I'm not saying it should be so, I'm saying it is so, that this is the way... Interests, global interests now. We talk about the West, but actually global interests. Third world countries, as we used to call them, need that oil. Uh, But the Western powers are big powers, and Russia is playing now a role in the region. Um, Intervention, whether we like it or not, is a given. I'm full of misgivings about intervening by proxy. See, people say now the West is not intervening in... Syria. We are intervening in Syria, but by proxy, by supporting other people. And the Saudis are intervening by proxy. Uh, and the Qataris and the Turks, now, and, and now the Turks are intervening in their own, you know, directly. Um, so I start from a fairly pessimistic premise that, that intervention is going to happen, whether we like it or not. Not all interventions are bad. Okay? I have... I have to be very careful here not to be misunderstood. I had a lot of misgivings in 1990, 1991. Kuwait, the West, Kuwait, Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait, it's wiped off the map. The West and a whole host of great international army puts Kuwait back on the map again. George Bush Senior did it by the book, unlike his son in 2003. By the book means you go to the United Nations. You get resolutions. The resolutions support you. You get international allies, as broad a coalition as you can. And you go in, and you resist the temptation then to go into Baghdad and do regime change, which the younger Bush did not resist. You say, our mandate authorized by the United Nations is to liberate Kuwait. Why do I have misgivings? Because this set off a whole train of tremors throughout the region. It polarized the Arab world. This may startle you if I say it this way. It created the beginnings of an Islamic revolution in Saudi Arabia, which in the end came to nothing. Saudi Arabia had these troops on its soil. You know, we've talked about a man wearing shorts. (laughs) Jewish American women soldiers wearing shorts on the holy soil of Arabia. And then the mythology said they were... Uh, flaunting themselves around the holy places of Mecca and Medina, which was complete rubbish, but the fact that they were there at all gave fodder, propaganda, fuel to people who said, hey, we've been invaded, this is the crusaders all over again. So I'm not saying this was a great intervention, but if a country is wiped from the map, it raises the question, what does international order mean? What does it stand for? What is international law? If the rest of the world shrugs... And when people said, and I was among them sarcastically, would we be doing this if Kuwait produced bananas? It's not entirely flip. If you allowed Saddam Hussein to take over a major oil-producing state uh, neighboring Iraq, where would he stop? Would he then dominate, bully all the the Gulf uh, Arabs who are, forgive me for saying it, uh, in some ways eminently bullyable because they are militarily weak? Um, you know, I have misgivings about it, but that kind of intervention was very whatever we think about it was very different from two thousand
5: and three. Uh, just just have a, let, let me get the other two in here. Um, Jonathan, you will remember, as many people here will remember, a uh, short UN doctrine called the responsibility to protect, and a uh, philosophy developed largely by Tony Blair of humanitarian intervention, a famous speech he made in Chicago in nineteen ninety nine. It led to uh, came in the wake of Kosovo. Uh, there was an intervention in Sierra Leone, uh, neither of which, incidentally, produced much oil. Uh, but nevertheless, there was a brief flowering of what a lot of people thought possibly were good interventions, military interventions. Were there any such interventions in the Middle East? Do you think? That were good, mm.
7: very few, I think. I, I mean. Uh, You've mentioned about the only one that there was, the Kuwait thing. I, I can't think of any others. I mean, not many had UN backing. No. I mean, obviously, Suez was completely without any UN backing, and they didn't even have US backing, which is as important nowadays as UN backing.
5: It's interesting, though, that neither Kosovo nor Sierra Leone were
6: UN-backed. No, they were not.
1: No.
6: How's are your thoughts? I just want to add one thing I just think we need to keep in mind. I think this is what Roger's trying to say is that non-intervention is intervention. Right. So, I mean, when the, when the U.S. decides um, not to intervene uh, fully in Somalia, that's one kind of intervention, right? Uh, and, and the same thing in Syria. So it's inevitable, you know, doing something and not doing something has consequences on the ground. Um, and, and so I don't think there's any escape from trying to think, you know, what is the most intelligent way, knowing that it will always end up bad. <laughs> Sometimes the answer is... Yeah. Do nothing. Yeah. Do no harm. And it is a form of intervention and when you do And yeah. our
4: policymakers sometimes find this very hard. Do nothing. Yeah. Do you remember how Britain and France persuaded an unwilling and obviously reluctant Barack Obama to intervene in Libya? Who was right when we look back?
5: Douglas Hurd used to be very rude during the early days of the Bosnia War about journalists who espoused what he called the something-must-be-done story. <laughs> and uh, I mean, politicians did find it very difficult, particularly when the television cameras were all over a particular disaster, uh, to resist the something-must-be-done cause.
4: There might be, well, this was Kuwait again, but do you want to give me the mic? Yeah. Do you remember John Major was criticized fairly roundly when he wanted to support the Kurds of northern Iraq? in a humanitarian way Um, after Saddam survived and he turned on the Kurds of the North and the Shia of the South. And our TV screens had awful images of streams of Kurds trying to flee across the mountains into Turkey or anywhere they could get to in the most difficult uh, circumstances. A clearly focused um, ambition Uh, An intervention with a clearly focused ambition uh, can succeed in doing something. I agree with Jonathan. They seem to be pretty few on the ground. And the danger of mission creep, as we've come to call it now, is that you start by doing X, but you end up with Y and Z, uh, and you get sucked in. This is the problem with no-fly zones uh, in Syria. Who would police them? Who would make them work? I don't know.
7: The real problem is that there's no assessment in advance of the intervention of what the likely consequences will be. And that's exactly what happened in Iraq, and the Chilcot report brought it out brilliantly. It wasn't that the war was necessarily illegal, and that's a whole debate that we can have. The war was reckless, and there is a thing called the crime of recklessness. If you are a reckless driver, you are a criminal driver. And there was no... It wasn't just that there was no planning, that's a separate thing, there was no assessment, a sort of damage impact assessment, which you have in environmental issues and other things. What is the impact gonna be of this decision? If you're taking something as vital as a decision to go to war, you have to calculate the consequences. And Blair tries to get away with it now by saying all these things were unforeseen. We didn't foresee these things, but academics and specialists, including even a few journalists, were telling them, if you invade Iraq, it will be a disaster. But he didn't try to even figure that out. He was just based on this idea of morality. Saddam was an evil dictator. He has to be removed.
5: Uh, now, the other question, I think, was about the role of women and young people in, in the events that you described. Um, Hazan, do you want to say something about that? I think
4: that, you know. is, is the Middle East changing? Um, and I think it is. And we saw this with the Arab Spring. In my book, trying to link the theme of the book with the Arab Spring, you, know, you always try and please your publisher and be very up to date, you know, fashionable <laughs> The Arab Spring, seen in one way, was a replay of the struggle for independence. It was the Egyptian people rising up and saying, we didn't get, you know, decolonization didn't work out well. We've got to try it again. We, the, the independence leaders promised us the moon and they didn't deliver so many years later so it was almost a rerun but under very different circumstances and part of that difference of circumstances was globalisation unlike demonstrators in Iran or Egypt or anywhere else in the 40s or 50s the world was wired up and among the people who were wired up were notably in Tahrir Square in particular uh, young people including young women Uh, I think this was hugely important one slight problem with sort of demography in the Middle East is people look at the figures and say there has to be a revolution because all these young people don't have the jobs they want they don't have the futures they want they all want to emigrate to Australia or somewhere uh, or, or Dubai actually um, 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 and it's got to produce an explosion this is kind of Western determinism um, in the Middle East, Given the nature of the regimes and the, the groups around the regimes, the supporting elites, both civil and military, uh, and also given that the Arab Spring has now been extinguished like a, like a candle being snuffed out, why would young people take to the streets again? Uh, in some places they are, but they've paid an extremely high price. And for what at the end? Uh, essentially a military man, CC in Egypt, Uh, Look at Syria, they will say. Um, And some of them cling to the evil they have rather than venture into the evil they know not of what. I'm sorry, I got that slightly wrong, but you know what I mean. Um, uh, What choice do you have? But socially speaking, there is massive change. And the development of, of, of a feminist movement, not always using that word, uh, but a whole range of women's uh, movements is hugely significant. Not many people i talk talked to over the years know that there are more female graduates in the Gulf countries than male graduates in Kuwait and Saudi Arabia. And this has been the case for some years. It's not new. The problem in Saudi Arabia is they're being educated to a high level to become intelligent wives and mums. And this is not sufficient. They want to have jobs, to do, do things, and the, the, the Wahhabis that were referred to earlier on, the Wahhabi establishment, makes it extremely difficult for them to do that.
5: Roger, I yeah. know, uh, Right, a uh, couple more questions. One right at the back there, mm-hmm. and then the lady here. Um, uh, Roger, you made the point that proxy intervention is a particularly nasty form of intervention. Do you think there's something about the way that, you know, we talk about how Britain hasn't intervened in Syria, but in reality we, along with others, are probably arming some very unsavoury groups about how kind of the international arms trade can make a lot of money off the back of this instability and what kind of responsibility is there for us as civil society in Britain to hold our governments to account over what intervention is actually going on and what weapons we are supplying to... Uh, either dodgy groups in Syria or, indeed, to Saudi Arabia to bomb children in Yemen. Thanks. Uh, I have the ladies out here. Uh, Just just, just wait for the microphone. We'll hear you, but people
1: elsewhere might not. You've got a very loud voice. Um, I just want to start off by just very briefly picking up on what you just said about social unrest. you You know far more about this than me, but if you look at Egypt... You know, there was social unrest in the 50s. There was social unrest again a few years ago. People come back on the streets, you know, even though their their parents and their sisters have been killed or imprisoned. Anyway, I mean, that's just... But, I mean, my, the, the real point I wanted to make was... You know, some of the panel here... I mean, you know, I, it sounds as if... You think of academics or journalists as the people who are taking the decisions, and you know, you're not. And you know the people <laughs> I mean, I hate it. to disappoint you. Um, you know, the people who are actually taking the decisions about intervention, liberal interventionism, etc, you know, are governments who, as you said yeah are operating within a paradigm which is not necessarily one which we may agree with. And I think, you know, like the last person just said at the back, you know, our role is really to interrogate the role of our governments rather than, you know, rather than just to be be critical.
5: And if everybody read Roger's book, then they would be far better able to do exactly that. Um, Roger on the international arms
4: trade. Sorry, the arm- international arms trade and our responsibility to hold our governments to account. It's a very live issue at the moment with Saudi Arabia because of the, its bombing. You know, as people are saying now in the region, the richest Arab country is bombing the poorest Arab country, uh, Yemen. The Saudis uh, vigorously deny that they are bombing uh, civilian. Places, schools, hospitals, but then the, the, the fact is that bombs are hitting those places and some of those bombs, I, I have no specific knowledge, but the allegation is some of them seem to have come from, from this country. I come back to this issue of interests and what I said before, the world is as it is, not what we wish it to be. I think we should lobby, um, we should name and shame. Uh, And frankly, it's more likely to be people uh, in the Labour Party or even on the left of the Labour Party, the non blairite wing of the Labour Party, who are much more likely to take up issues of human rights, where the the party to which the fingers are being pointed is a very, very close ally of the United Kingdom. I asked a British ambassador, completely off the record, in Riyadh, whether he would raise with the Saudi princes, the senior level of Saudis, I'm raising a slightly different issue, but the problem is exactly the same. This is why I'm raising it. Whether he would raise the question of why there was no church in Saudi Arabia, even a small church for expatriates, the diplomatic community. And he looked at me and he said, if I was one-to-one with a prince, first of all, he would leave the room And secondly, we would be left wondering if the next big arms contract would go to France or somebody else. It was an extremely candid answer, and I think it's a a true answer. If I'm honest, I'm pretty glad I'm not in the shoes of that ambassador. I think we should raise issues of human rights with Bahrain, where there's a great absence of human rights, with Saudi Arabia, with Egypt, and a clever diplomat, we have one with us, I don't know Hookie Walker whether you feel <laughs> inclined to say anything to There's us no but a, a retired <laughs> diplomat <laughs> uh, a clever diplomat will at least try to square that circle they will try to raise issues that are clearly very unwelcome on the other side uh, while not totally shredding uh, trade whether or not with arms or anything else on which let's let's say it, thousands of often tens of thousands of British jobs depend. You, if you feel this is a wishy-washy answer, it is.
5: <laughs> Jonathan, um, arms trade.
7: Well, I mean, I can only be just as wishy-washy as you <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, obviously it would be better if we weren't selling arms to these people, but um, there is the competitive thing, and um, you know, that's the world as it is. I mean, I think these slap-on-the-wrist type things are are silly. I mean, 45 Americans were working with the targeting arrangements of the Saudi Air Force. And then the other day, they withdrew 40 of them. Now, was it a signal that they were displeased with the way the targeting was going because they were hitting hospitals and schools? And if they were, why didn't they pull out all 45? (laughs) Why leave five? I mean, it's meaningless. So this slap on the wrist type of approach is useless. You either have to admit that these things are almost unsoluble or you just don't do any arms selling at all.
6: I mean, the thing is, I think society has a very important role in interrogating and pressuring governments to move in certain positions. But, and I think both of you are mentioning, the world as it is, not the way we wish it to be. I think the more unrealistic... Uh, positions taken by um, civil society, the more irrelevant uh, they become, because obviously most citizens uh, see that this is just not the way to go. So, um, you know, seeing the world as it is, trying to think realistically about what the government can do, and then pressuring the government into a reasonable position, um, I think is more effective than trying to always take the higher moral ground about uh, becoming completely irrelevant in the process of policymaking, Just specifically on Saudi Yemen, do you think there is anything the
5: UK could effectively do, any pressure it could effectively bring to bear that would make any difference?
6: Well, I mean, the UK has uh, spoken specifically about its discomfort with the fact that Saudi Arabia is using much of the weapons supplied by London uh, in an ill-devised um, in an ill-devised campaign. Uh, and I think specifically, this is the kind of position that you know, citizens can you know, justifiably push their governments to think about it. Where is this campaign going? Is it going to succeed? Uh, rather than the fact that we don't want to see our weapons ever going to countries that might conceivably use them, in, talking about specifics of a particular campaign that's ill-devised, that's going wrong, uh, and how damaging that would be, is i think much better than kind of having this general very idealistic views um, of you know where we need to sell our i mean there is
7: one one other argument which is as far as we can tell saudi arabia is a very opaque society there is quite a debate going on within the ruling family about whether this yemen uh, intervention adventure was correct or not so you could perhaps argue that if britain and america were more strong in condemning what's going on in Yemen, you would help the so-called doves in Riyadh over the halls. So you know you could use that argument. I don't know whether it would really have any no, traction.
6: I, I think you're absolutely right. But this is, again, one of the problems of dealing with the Middle East is that many of these regimes are very opaque. And so policymakers and diplomats would know things, but they won't be able to share them with the public. And that's another problem, because the public then doesn't really know that there are things that are happening behind closed doors that might lead one way or the other. But I think that the government's main responsibility here is to share information with its own citizens um, uh, rather than worrying too much about the sensibilities of people over there because its main responsibility is towards its citizens. It may be difficult for diplomats to share
5: some of this with the public. It may be different for former diplomats. And given that uh, one of them has been outed now by Roger, <laughs> Mr. Former Ambassador, um, if there is anything you would like to say, we would be interested to hear it. I have no wish to embarrass you if you would rather sit quietly and just listen. Up to you.
0: Seriously, I wouldn't want to compete with this uh, distinguished panel, but I think the human rights question is, is very difficult. Fundamentally, it is an interest of the UK to promote human rights throughout the world, because A, it's moral, and B, if the world all obeyed human rights norms, it would be a better place and a better place for business. But it doesn't do you any good, as the panel have been saying, to simply shout from the rooftops. Um, Governments like humans react adversely to being shouted at. So you have to choose your methods according to the person you're talking to. And um, we have much less um, in the media about uh, Chinese abuse of human rights than we do about Saudi Arabia because the media recognise that China is enormously important to our economy. Well, the same goes for all these states and uh, you have to choose your weapons but I think as as somebody said there's a lot more going on behind the scenes than can be stated publicly because if you state it publicly the host government has to react so I mean has to react adversely so you do it
5: quietly normally. Thanks very much we can take one or possibly two more there's a lady here and that will be the last one and I'm sorry if I have ignored this section of the room
2: Um, One possible, um, very positive, uh, intelligent intervention might be, and I think it would be positive for all parties, I think would be for America to intervene with Israel and put a lot of pressure for them to withdraw from the settlements, the occupied territories, um, and reach an agreement along the 2002 Arab League proposals, uh, which were of course rejected, Now, that is kind of unthinkable, but why is it so unthinkable?
5: Okay, in two minutes, Uh, (laughs) Israel-Palestine. Roger.
4: Roger. Is the mic working okay? Can you hear me at the back? I I agree fully with the the question and the premise of the question. Um, I try to argue in the book, particularly in the... Well, there's a Palestine chapter, but in the epilogue, uh, I refer to the British withdrawal from Palestine as one of the great humiliations in the story of the European powers in the Middle East. Um, It was a a, a humiliation at the time because it was a signal of failure. And I'm told by historians, I read among historians, it was the only time Britain left without handing over to any power, any post-colonial authority. Because there was no post-colonial authority. I'm open to correction on this, but it was a a huge failure in that sense, but it was also a huge failure in in, in an ongoing sense because we're still living with the consequences. No one has solved uh, the problem. The Americans were a problem for Britain then in the person of Harry Truman. One of the reasons the British left was the quite intolerable pressure they had from a Zionist president, Harry Truman, to allow in tens of thousands of Jewish immigrants, uh, undoubtedly in the most pitiful condition, escaping uh, Europe, to the small territory of Palestine, the size of Wales, where already the more Jewish immigrants came in, the more the Arabs were angry and the Arab backlash continued and the worse the conflict became, and in the end, with the pressures from inside and from outside. Does this remind you of anything? The British throw in the sponge. Britain was replaced by the United States. And I think Barack Obama tried gamely, was a brave thing to do, to take on Bibi. Apparently, the two loathe one another. I mean, they don't dislike one another. They can't stand one another. But Uh, he went off I think at half cock saying you've got to stop uh, expanding Jewish settlements don't uh, plant any new Jewish settlements and we're going to have a peace process Bibi said not in so many words but in reality go to hell and in that confrontation Obama was humiliated made to look foolish and even naive Uh, what do we do? The European Union is the paymaster of the Palestinian Authority. And to me, and Tony Blair is very involved in all of that, in his latter-day role, being post-premier. And to me, this, again, is the great myth that you can buy Palestinian hearts and minds. You can't give them a peace; in other words, you can't give them a state. You try and improve their economy and say, you know, what more do you want? Well, they want a state. They've wanted a state since before 1948. Um, I don't see a a way forward. People say a lame duck Obama may make one more try. Good luck to him. Uh, Putin is trying something. I think the French are involved. Good luck to them. I don't think it's going to work. Jonathan, briefly.
7: Well, I agree. and um, It's the US Congress that is partly to blame because the US Congress has its hand on the purse strings. So even if Obama tried to say we're cutting the enormous budget subsidy that still goes to Israel all the time, even though it's obviously not a developing country, uh, the Congress would continue to pay it. And and I think, you know, now that we're already coming to the stage of writing the sort of legacy of Barack Obama, I think the sad conclusion will be that this is about as left-wing on international issues a president as you can possibly get, and look how little he's been able to do because of the almost paralysis of the American system, because of the way the Congress... Can thwart the precedent,
6: Well, uh, Edward Said, in his last interview before he passed away in two thousand and three, said, um, "I lived all my life arguing that we can't have a two-state solution. Now I realise we can't have a one-state solution either." Um, and I, you know, I think it's a. That's my uh, take on the issue. Well, thanks.
5: On <laughs> that, hugely
6: encouraging. Um, may I,
5: on your behalf, thank our panel, Jonathan Steele, Hazem Kandil, and, of course, Roger Harney. You will have an opportunity, if you've not already done so, to buy the book, to shake Roger by the hand. Thank you all very much for some wonderful questions. Thank you. So
4: much. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.